Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode 108 of the Leading Wild Grain podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Jordan Rayner and we have a conversation about his new book, Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Before we jump into the conversation with Jordan, I just want to thank everyone who joined me and my friends in Orlando. That's right. We were in Orlando for the next stop on the Find Your Courage tour. I wrote a book, Leading While Scared, How to Find the Courage to Keep Going. You can find that book at PRCQuinn.com slash scared. And I've been on a tour called the Find Your Courage Tour, sharing principles from the book and strategies on how to face your fear and lead with courage. We started in D.C., then we moved to Baltimore, and most recently we were in Orlando, Florida. It was a great stop. It was an amazing stop. I was joined by some dynamic speakers, Jamie Pottinger from Pottinger and Associates, Kamon Hines from Ideas to Life, Dr. Julian Johnson from Built to Thrive, and Chris Bartley from the Bartley Group. And we had a great time. Now, Atlanta, you are up next, February 23rd. The Find Your Courage Tour is making its Atlanta stop. Tickets will be available soon on PRCQuinn.com slash Courage Tour. So be out on the lookout for that. If you follow me on social media, on Instagram at Pierre Quinn, on Twitter at Pierre Quinn, on LinkedIn, Pierre Quinn, or on Facebook, Mr. Pierre Quinn, you can get all the updates on the Find Your Courage Tour that way as well. So my guest today is Jordan Rayner. Jordan Rayner is the author of Master of One and the national bestseller called to create. He leads a growing community of Christians seeking to more deeply connect their faith with their work. Now, in addition to his writing, Jordan serves as the executive chairman of the tech startup Threshold 360, where he previously served as CEO after launching a string of successful ventures. Now, he's a highly sought after speaker on the topic of faith and work. He's spoken at Harvard University, South by Southwest, Q Ideas, and many other events around the world. Jordan has been twice selected as a Google Fellow and served in the White House under President George W. Bush. He recently launched the Call to Mastery with Jordan Rayner podcast and has written for Relevant, the Gospel Coalition, and has been interviewed by CNBC, Fast Company, Wired Magazine, and the Startup Camp podcast. Jordan is a sixth generation Floridian and he lives in Tampa with his wife and three young daughters. Here's my conversation with Jordan Rayner. I am excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Grain podcast by Jordan Rayner. Jordan, thanks for being my guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pierre. Okay, so so take us back. Take us back to collegiate life when you were trying <laughs> to figure out just exactly what you were what you were going to do with your life. Oh man, uh, those were the years, right? Uh, when you when you got to experiment with anything. So yeah, so the first part of my career, definitely in college, I was the quintessential jack of all trades, master of none, right? So in college, I did man, I did a ton of stuff in college. Every semester, I had different internship. Uh, I thought I was going to be a political operative. I, I spent a semester in the Bush White House. I played piano in a wine bar in Tallahassee. Uh, I had an internship for the Republican Party of Florida. I was also working part-time for a tech startup. So, you know, again, jack of all trades, uh, which I actually, listen, here's the deal. I don't have a problem, even today, 
being described as a jack of all trades. But I've always had a big problem with being described as a master of none because you know I, I believe the essence of the Christian life is to glorify God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And we do that through our work. When we do our work with mastery, masterfully well, and serve as really effective imitators and image bearers of God's character of excellence, right? Like master, the opposite of mastery is mediocrity, and mediocrity is just a failure of love of neighbor. And so uh, about five years into my career, I started really seriously asking, all right, so what's the alternative to being a jack of all trades and a master of none? And I believe the solution is, you know what, it's fine embracing being a jack of all trades, but there ought to be one thing that you go really big on, right? You should be a master of one. There's got to be one thing vocationally that you can point to and say, yes, I am pursuing world-class mastery of this thing because I believe my work is the means of glorifying God and his character of excellence and loving my neighbor as myself. Uh, so that's what this whole book is about. So I'm releasing a book called Master of One, uh, which helps readers do exactly that. Find focus on and master the work that God created them to do. How did you settle on this, on this title uh, master of one? What, what, yeah. what led you to, to this, to this? Yeah. So the phrase Jack of all trades, master of none is pretty common, right? I think a lot of people are familiar with this phrase. What they don't know though, uh, is it's actually a misquote of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, so Benjamin Franklin supposedly is the first person to utter this phrase. And he was saying the exact opposite of what we take that phrase to mean today. He was saying what I'm saying in this book, be a Jack of all trades, have lots of hobbies, have lots of interests, have a lot of experience prior to becoming a master of one and, and going really big on your one thing. And, and Franklin's life is a, is a pretty good picture of that. So uh, that's the advice I'm outlining in this book because uh, I believe that our standards as Christians is excellence in all things. First Corinthians 10 tells us to do all things for the glory of God. Uh, what does it mean to glorify God? It means to reveal his character to the world, right? Uh, and we do that. We can only do that when we're doing uh, our most excellent work. Not perfect, right? Perfection is never our, 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 our goal, right? But doing our work with excellence. I think too many of us are just, man, Pierre, I, I think too many of us are just scattered across a million different things, professionally and personally. And you can't do anything with excellence. Very hard to do anything with excellence when you're spread that thin. And I think we're all overwhelmed by it. I think we're overwhelmed by this idea that I got to be good at everything. That's an exhausting thought. And so I think in a way, this book is really freeing for people to say, okay, figure out the one thing that God has uniquely created you to do and just go big on that and put all of your eggs in that basket. You know, as, as a person of faith, and you're, and you're a person of faith, and I have a lot of conversations with leaders who are also persons of faith, sometimes there's a challenge with uh, qualifying what what ministry looks like if I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. not a leader in my church. So how how is my work as a senior director, as a program manager, as a CEO, how 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 are you asking us to reframe how we look at work? as it relates to, to, to ministry and our calling? Oh, man, what a great question. This is all I talk about on my podcast. Uh, so, you know, I believe not only is work ministry, I think it's a Christian's primary means of ministry in the world. Now, you got you to gotta really understand what the word ministry means, right? What, what is the call of the Christian? The call of the Christian is to glorify God, 
to love neighbor as self, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that can be done whether you're in congregational ministry like you were previously, Pierre, or whether you're a computer programmer or a salesperson or a stay-at-home dad or what, whatever, whatever that role is, right? And so yeah, as Christians, we got to remember that work existed prior to the fall. I think we forget about this a lot, right? The Bible... By the way, the Bible is the only text, the only religious text that says that God himself worked. Every other religion says that the gods created human beings to work and serve the gods. Only the Bible says no and starts with a God who rolls up his sleeves and is productive and creates new things for the good of others. That gives inherent dignity and meaning to all work, right? Then he created Adam and Eve, and the first thing he told them to do was fill the earth and subdue it to work pre-sin, right? So work is inherently worshipful. I think we forget that. And work can continue to be worship uh, even after the fall, so long as our primary motivations for our work uh, is the glory of God and service of neighbor, right? But I mean, talk about wh- wh- where else do we have opportunities to like really love our neighbor as ourselves? That's what we do. That's what we're doing 50 hours a week uh, in our jobs. If we're doing our jobs well, if we're bringing products to market that help solve people's problems and lead people well, we're loving neighbor as self. And that's a good and God honoring thing in and of itself. I think part of the the struggle or the strain in seeing work as 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 ministry, seeing places to love our neighbors and be respectable and follow the the, the, the mandate of faith as outlined by it, mm-hmm. in the Bible and in our conversations. It, it part of the difficulty is that these lies you describe about work. And when yeah. I was reading through them in the book, I said, "Whoa!" Like this. Man, I've, I I fell for these a long time ago. Oh, me too, man. I think I'm still trying to to shake them. Can you can you take us through those three lies that we we continue to tell the, uh, ourselves, especially our kids, our children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, we we I hear this advice these three lies spoken to kids all the time, including my kids. Right. So in the, in the book, I outline these three lies of career and calling that I think virtually all of us have 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 been sold and, and believed at some point in time, uh, myself included. And they're dangerous because they keep us from focusing in our careers and mastering the work that God created us to do. So here's the three lies. Number one, uh, you can be anything you want to be, right? This is not true. I'm five foot six. I cannot play professional basketball as much as I would have loved to when I was in the eighth grade. It was never in the cards for me. You can't be anything you want to be. And oh, by the way, that's freeing, right? Because if you could be anything you want to be, the choices are totally overwhelming, especially in this day and age. Number two, I think we bought the lie that you can do everything you want to do. You can have it all, right? That's yeah. not true. The reality is uh, there are trade-offs that you have to make in life if you want to do really exceptional work and have a high-impact life. And I think the third lie is probably the biggest one uh, that I know uh, – I believed early in my career. I think millennials have been sold this. I think even younger uh, kids have been sold this. And it's this lie that your happiness is the primary purpose of work, right? So I grew up with my parents and lots of well-intended Christian adults telling me, hey, Jordan, with your career, whatever you do, do whatever makes you happy. Follow your passions, follow your dreams, do whatever makes you happy happy. And it turns out that this is like really terrible advice. Uh, First and foremost, because it just doesn't work, right? So millennials have had more opportunity to quote, 
do whatever makes us happy vocationally. And yet Gallup and every other poll tells us that we are the least happy generation (laughs) at work. Something's not working, right? And so in Master of One, I actually cite a couple of different academic studies that show why, right? So there's this great researcher uh, at Yale, uh, who I'm not sure if she's a Christian or not. Her name is Amy Rosneski. And she spent her whole career trying to understand what leads people to describe their work as a career or sorry, as a calling, as opposed to a job or career. And the number one predictor is not whether or not the person was passionate about the work before they started it. The number one predictor was the number of years somebody spent getting masterfully good at that craft. Right. So passion is a side effect of mastery. We get to love what we do by getting really good at it. And Pierre, you know this, as, a, as Christians, this shouldn't, this shouldn't shock us at all, right? We are called to model our lives after Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. Follow your passions. It's all about me and what value a job can give me. And I believe, and I outline this book, a much more effective, oh, and by the way, more importantly, God-honoring strategies to follow your gifts. Focus on the work that you could do most exceptionally well and make others happy. And that's the most predictable path of finding work that you're going to stay in love with for a really long time. Okay. So how do we, how do we reconcile this with the education process and the education journey, which says, after I graduate high school, by the time I get to college, I need to have a major I need to have yeah, yeah. figure it out. Like how, like, I don't even really know what I'm good at. Yeah. How do I go through that process, especially early on in my, my career? My- that's, that's a really good question. And I do believe that we are asking kids to choose, you know, in the vernacular of my book, their one thing way too early in life. College is not the time, right? Like I believe, so in the book, I outline a four-step path to finding and focusing on your one thing and mastering your one thing. And the first step is exploration and taking the time to experiment widely in your career, do a bunch of odd jobs, take a bunch of different internships, change your major eight times, whatever, right? Like when you're young, especially when you're in college, your one thing is experimenting to figure out what you like, what you don't like, more importantly, what you're gifted at and what you're not gifted at, right? Because again, that's the best predictor of vocational happiness. And so, yeah, Pierre, I agree. I think the education system is set up in a way that it, it really is trying to force kids to choose that one thing uh, too early in life. But here's the deal, right? Regardless of when you decide to commit to your one thing vocationally, you got to remember that, uh, number one, there are, base, there are almost no irreversible decisions, right? Uh, so so that that's really, really important uh, to keep in mind. Uh, and number two, if you care about doing your most masterful work, I believe there is an imperative to make a decision, right? You got to get to that point at some point in your career. And if you decide to pivot a couple years down the path, great. You'll, you'll learn more about what you're gifted at so you can get closer and closer to that sweet spot of how God has uniquely created you to do your best work in the world. And it clarify for us because some some people they haven't read the book yet. Uh, when they hear one thing, yeah, I think yeah. some people are lis- listening and they're thinking, what do, you, "Do you mean like one like <laughs> one job? Do you mean like right. one company?" In the book, you you describe this sort of broad application of your one thing versus yeah. narrow application of your one thing. Can you can you kind of talk us through that? Yeah, great question. I, I think on the surface, this title can seem intimidating. I, I, I know when I first heard the idea of like master of one, I'm like one thing, like 
there's, there's no one thing that could encompass all of my interests and I think all of my gifts in life. And so in the book, uh, I talk about an encounter I had with C.S. Lewis's stepson. Uh, his name's Douglas Gresham. And for me, C.S. Lewis has always been a great hero. Right. And and when I came up with this concept for Master of One, I was like, man, well, C.S. Lewis really stands in stark contrast to this hypothesis, right? Like Lewis was a masterful writer of fiction, of nonfiction. He was a masterful radio broadcaster. And oh, by the way, he was a masterful teacher at Oxford College for, you know, 30 years. He wasn't a master of one, was he? And uh, I sat down with his stepson, Douglas Gresham, and Doug was like, no, 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 Jordan, you're you're missing the point. It was absolutely one thing. It was just a really broad one thing. Jack was very intentional about his one thing being teaching. He was a masterful teacher, and he applied that one thing in a few different contexts, in writing, in teaching at the university, in being a a BBC radio broadcaster. So that was extremely helpful for me. So listen, I think some people's one thing might be really specific, right? My mother-in-law has been the director of children's choral music at Idaho Baptist Church for 33 years, right? Her one thing is a position And not surprisingly, when you spend that much time doing something, she's like world-class at what she does. Uh, But my one thing is much broader. C.S. Lewis's thing was much broader. And your listeners, I bet their one thing is going to be much, much broader. It might be leadership. It might be teaching. It might be communication, right? My one thing is entrepreneurship, right? Like I am really good at spotting gaps in the market of designing products to meet that gap and meet that need in the market and set up systems for those products to sell well without my direct involvement over time. That's my thing. And I can apply that to a tech startup. I can apply that to writing books. It's the exact same skill set, uh, but, but viewing it as one thing is tremendously helpful to me because it helps me articulate what I'm great at in my craft so I can focus more and more of my time practicing those things and ignoring everything else. You're so, you're so committed to, to what you've written and what you've researched. Uh, I, I was reading, you made a pivot in, <laughs> yeah. in the chair that you sit in, the chair of responsibility, so that you could spend more time doing your, your one thing. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. So first 10 years of my career, I was a serial tech entrepreneur, sold two companies, uh, and then most recently ran a pretty well-funded tech startup called Threshold 360. Uh, Had a blast doing it. I was CEO, uh, brought the company to market, and the company's still doing phenomenal today. But uh, right at the time that Threshold 360 was taking off, uh, my career as a writer was taking off, right? So I had a book called Called to Create that just even to this day, just continues to sell and sell and sell by the grace of God alone. And so I had these two things running in tandem. I still believe that both of them uh, were expressions of my one thing, right? I was bringing a software product to market, a tech product, and I was bringing a content product to market. But even that wasn't focused. I knew even that wasn't focused enough for me, right? I knew that I had a choice to make. I could either be a world-class tech startup CEO, an entrepreneur, or a world-class content entrepreneur and bringing uh, books like Master of One and Call to Create and my podcast to market. And so, yeah, you know, very, uh, very expensive decision for me, but I believe in the message so much. I stepped down as CEO of this tech startup. I spent a year recruiting my replacement, uh, and now I'm still involved in the company a little bit today. I'm still executive chairman of the board, 
but yeah, I, I, I just came to a point. So I was like, you know what? I have to put all of my eggs in one basket. I can't keep dipping my toe in one or the other. I got to go all in. And so that was, I mean, that was the hardest decision I've ever had to make professionally, but I continue to believe and I'm almost a year past that move. I continue to believe it was an essential decision to make for me to continue to do my most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. That's when, when you look at the, the profiles of uh, several of the people in the book that you interviewed, yeah. it, it, it often, you often highlight how they made similar decisions to exchange, you know, good for greater or, or better for best. What, what were some of the, the other underlying themes that kind of ran through these conversations uh, with these, these persons of faith and of excellence that have accomplished so much with, with mastering their one thing? Yeah. So, um, you know, the book started out with a question, right? Like, how do we do our most masterful work uh, as, as believers? How do, how do we do that work faithfully? And so I had a small team of researchers that scoured every little bit of academic research. We read every business book on the topic of mastery, which, man, there are a ton. Uh, and then we actually went out and we sat down and we interviewed about 25 Christians who also happen to be world-class in their fields, right? So we talked to Tony Dungy, the NFL Hall of Fame coach. We talked to Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water, uh, Emily Lay, the founder of Simplified. Uh, who else did we talk to? Douglas Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson, who's producing all the Narnia films with Disney and Netflix. Uh, so, I mean, world-class people, right? And in all of those conversations, we were trying to understand, okay, what are the keys to mastering your one thing? Once you've traveled down the path to mastery, chosen your one thing, how do you master it? And there were basically three things that came up time and time again. Number one was apprenticeships, right? Uh, so masters almost always enter into some sort of apprenticeship relationship. Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers did this. Uh, C.S. Lewis did this. Scott Harrison did this. All these guys did this. Uh, number two, the, the, the second key to mastery is purposeful practice. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with the 10,000 hour rule, that it takes 10,000 hours of practice to get masterful at anything vocationally. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that it's not just 10,000 hours of practice. It's 10,000 hours of purposeful practice, right? Which, which distinguishes itself uh, quite significantly from how we typically define practice. Uh, and then the third key to master is just discipline over time. Man, you got to stick with something long enough to get world-class at it. And I think that's the one that like trips us up. I know that's the one that trips me up sometimes, right? It's just staying committed to the thing uh, and just putting in the reps and doing the work to get world-class at it and find that ultimate sort of satisfaction of vocation that's sustainable over a long period of time. So, so what about, you know, we're, we're, we're younger, younger guys. Yeah. What about like Jordan? I'm 65. Yeah. Just kind of meandered through my career. I might've even worked for a company for, for 30 years and retired. Mm -hmm. And I have to confess, you know, hypothetically I'm confessing that I never really honed in on my one thing and masters it master. Yeah. I think it's too late for me. What, what, what would you say to that? Yeah. So I'd say it's, it's never too late. So long as God has given you energy, uh, to, to roll up your sleeves and do the work. I think we are called the work, uh, pretty much forever. I, I think I think there's a pretty clear picture in scripture of, of work in heaven, even right. New heavens, new earth. Uh, so it's never too late. Number two, I'll say this. And one of the things that was really clear in researching the book 
is people think about their one things in seasons of life, right? So right now, my one thing is entrepreneurship. That that might not be my one thing forever, right? Like I may pivot 15 years down the road to something else. Michelangelo, right, and Da Vinci, these guys are like famous for this, right? They would master one particular art form, right? They'd spend five, 10 years mastering an art form and then they would do something else. They would master something else, right? And so I, I think that's a great encouragement, especially if you are later on in your career. And we've had lots of advanced readers who are, you know, between let's call it 45 to 60 who have read the book. And a lot, if you go read a lot of the, the reviews, the response is, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I have this as I enter into retirement or as I enter into this next chapter of my career, which as an author is incredibly encouraging. Yeah, I interviewed uh, several podcast episodes ago, a gentleman by the name of Chuck Gatica, and he is an Emmy Award winning weatherman from Detroit. Hmm. And now he is focused on uh, left television news, television media. Now he's focused on second half significance and, and yeah. you know, how to focus on the latter part of, of your career at what you're called to do. Because a lot of us are, we really think that by the time we get to a certain age, we need to have it figured out. Yeah. What, what, what do you say to, and let's go back to the previous question about college students. What, what do you say to a, a young person that's dealing with the pressure of, I hear what you're saying, Jordan, about experimenting, but you don't know my parents or <laughs> I'm paying for school or yeah, yeah. you don't even know my church or where I come from. They're pr- yeah. I got to be a doctor. I have to be. And you're talking about this 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 idea of one thing. Yeah, so I'll come back to that in a second because I want to address what you said about the second half uh, significance. So I love this this trend we're seeing in older generations of uh, basically second, third careers. But I have a really big problem with this idea of viewing one season of your career as significant and the other not. Because I think inherent in that is a really, really bad unbiblical theology of work that says that, you know, my work as, you know, a plumber for 20 years was insignificant, but now I'm going out in the mission field in, you know, uh, Africa and that's significant. That's a lie. Jesus told us all to go and make disciples of all nations. And by the way, Jesus never really left like a couple hundred mile radius of his home. And he was the greatest disciple maker of all time. It wasn't about how far he went. It was about what he did while he was going, right? And the same is true for you and me. You and I can make disciples. You and I can glorify God. You and I can love our neighbors ourselves right where we are, right? Right where we are today as a, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a plumber, whoever. All right. Anyways, back to your question. Yeah. Uh, what would I say to the young kid who's like, okay, great. Experimentation is great, but I got to make, I got to make money. Uh, listen, there are always economic considerations. If you're putting yourself through school, uh, you gotta, you gotta just do whatever will make you money. Right. Uh, now while you're doing that, while you have a nine to five or whatever that job is, uh, you can always be placing little bets. What, what I call little bets, like outside of that job. Right. So that could be the first hour of your day. Maybe you want to be a writer. Maybe you want to write a book, right? The first hour of every day before you leave your house to go to the office, just sitting down and cranking out, you know, 500 words or whatever it is. Right. Uh, you could still be experimenting even if, uh, economic realities for you to be working a job that you don't think uh, is your one thing, right? And we, I see that a lot. Uh, yeah, Emily Lay, who I talk about in the book, she's the founder and CEO of a 
pretty significant business. They sell uh, basically day planners to women all around the world, right? But she had a nine to five job in corporate America and she just did this on the side. In the mornings at nighttime, uh, she would crank out this little business with these increasing, you know, bets. Uh, it started with, you know, selling one $20 print on Etsy and then it just grew from there. Uh, so there are ways, right, to get to what you think your one thing is uh, by placing little bets over time. How how much does the miracle and benefit of technology aid um, that discovery and purposeful practice of one thing? Because oh yeah, times before you didn't you you didn't have that the 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 latitude that you had in the spare time and the resources in spare time. But now yeah. we have a plethora of resources, and how can we leverage those as we are in pursuit? Yeah, it's huge, right? So uh, you know, we have more access to mentors than ever before, right? So again, the book, going back to this principle of apprenticeships is one of the three keys to mastery. In the book, I talk about direct apprenticeships and indirect apprenticeships, right? So a direct apprenticeship is what you're likely thinking of when you hear the word, right? It is you going to work for somebody, right? Or you have a direct personal relationship with them, right? And are getting constant feedback. That's that's uh, that's the ideal way to do apprenticeships. But another really good way is just like buying a course on masterclass, right? Or, or watching YouTube videos of somebody who could teach you something. We've never had more information at our fingertips to be able to do that, which is great. Here's the problem though, Pierre. Because of this rise in information, we also have more options than ever before for our careers, right? And that can be paralyzing to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people get to a place like, man, well, if I can do anything, I don't even know where to start. Like, especially the college, I can do my, my parents have been telling me I can do anything with my life. That's exhausting. I guess I just won't choose anything, right? I, I, I think it creates a lot of paralysis. And that's why I refute that lie. You can't do anything you want to do so long as you care about doing work with excellence. So do the work, figure out what you're gifted at, let that weed out a lot of different options, and then just make a choice. Just make a choice. Just start somewhere, right? And pivot along the way. Not only do we have a lot of options, uh, you talk about in the book, we have a lot of distractions and you, uh, you quote Greg McEwen, who also yeah. did a review of the book um, and this kind of these principles of, of, of essentialism that he espouses in his book. Mm-hmm. How, what are some practical things that we can do to really minimize the distractions as we're trying to, to focus and undergird our, our one thing? Yeah, it's a great question. So in the macro sense of our careers, right, in order to stay focused, number one, you have to first articulate what you're pursuing mastery of vocationally. Otherwise, you don't know what you're being distracted away from, right? So that's critical, right? Number two, you got to surround yourself with people who are going to keep you accountable to what you say you want to stay focused on, right? So my wife for me and my business partner in a, in a former venture, they're my most inner circle, right? So when I'm like, oh, I'll give you a great example. Uh, I read a great book about, I don't know, three years ago called Disney War. And recently I'm like, I want to develop this into a screenplay. And my wife's like, stop, you're an idiot. Like you're, you're building this venture at Jordan Rainer and company. This is not in line with it. Stop. All right. So in the macro sense of our careers, I think that's how you can stay focused. One, articulate what you're saying yes to. And two, surround yourself with people who are going to keep you accountable to that. Right. In the micro sense of a workday, you know, you just got to ruthlessly eliminate distractions and notifications, right? So I'm shocked at how many people work with notifications turned on their phone and their laptops. It's insane. Like, I do not understand. You cannot get deep work done uh, if you've got notifications pinging you, you know, every five minutes. So like, practi- very practically, 
my phone is always, always on do not disturb. Uh, and I have never had a notification pop up on my laptop. I just don't have notifications turned on, not for Slack, not for email, not for Twitter, nothing. Uh, and that's how I'm able to be, I think, wildly productive. It's just being ruthless about eliminating those distractions in your life. It's not that hard. It's not that hard to set up the technology to do it. Um, but it, but it, it is hard to get started. It is hard to get started. Now, you, you talk about eliminating those distractions. There's, but Jordan, listen. If I don't have my notifications, <laughs> I might miss something. Oh, man. I've heard this forever. I hear this excuse all the time. Here's my advice. Try it for one week hmm. and document how many things were truly urgent that couldn't wait. Right? So take email, for example. I think this is the, hard, this is the thing that people have a really hard time letting go of checking every two minutes. Um, don't, check it twice a day for one week. And at the end of the week, uh, really ask yourself how many things couldn't have waited a few hours for a response. So I check my email roughly at 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. every day. I cannot remember the last time. It's, I, maybe it's happened one or two times in the eight or so years I've been doing this. That's something really couldn't have waited. And man, missing out on those one or two things far outweighs the value I get from being intensely focused uh, throughout my day. When you look at the interviews that you had in the book, what what was one of the interviews that when you were going through it, uh, the, the the person who was operating at world class, you were saying, man, that that I think that advice is, may stick with me just just a little bit longer with the way they processed and pursued excellence and even maybe minimize distraction. Yeah, I think the most impactful story was probably this guy by the name of Anthony Gaudi. Uh, so if your listeners have ever visited Barcelona, they probably know that name. So obviously I did not interview Gaudi. Gaudi died, I don't know, at the turn of the century, something like that. Um, but Gaudi was this like world famous architect who spent the first few decades of his career designing some of Barcelona's most incredible attractions that are still there today. Uh, but later in his career, he caught this vision for a new project, a church, that would be so massive and so intricate and so masterful that it would quite literally, as First Peter 2.9 says, proclaim the excellencies of God. And you know, he always had his hand at a bunch of different projects at the same time, but he was so convinced of basically what I'm arguing in Master of One, that the path to doing our most exceptional work is the path of less but better, uh, that he decided to focus exclusively on the church, one project for the last 12 years of his life. And listen, this guy, this guy's designs were so intricate that the church is still being constructed today, more than 135 years after they started work on it. Um, it's almost finished. It's going to be finished in a few years, uh, but you can already visit it. And it is, it's a masterpiece. I've been before. It is one of the most spectacular places I've ever been to. Yeah. So out of the dozens of stories I wrote about in the book to illustrate this core theme, man, that is the best physical picture possible. And by the way, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when this is airing. By the way, when is this airing, Pierre? It is. It is airing as the the, the exact time of your book debut. All right, good. All right, great. So we could talk about this. Uh, that's why I asked. So I'm actually giving away 
a trip for two people to go see La Sagrada Familia, this amazing church in person. Uh, so I'm giving away a, a trip for two to Barcelona. Uh, you and a friend, one of your listeners and a friend, uh, if they win the sweepstakes, can go see that. Then I'm going to fly to Barcelona and take them to dinner. Uh, and then after that, they're going to go on this incredible seven-night cruise uh, across Europe to Italy and Spain and France. Pretty awesome. So if you go pre-order the book right now, or if the book's out right now, January 21st, go order the book wherever you order books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever. Uh, order Master of One, and then go to jordrainer.com. Tell me that you pre-ordered the book, and you'll be entered to win a chance to go see this church, Gaudi's masterpiece. Well, why was that a, a, a big... A nudge for you to to include yeah. this trip, this experience, um, th- th- this giveaway. Why why was it so significant, and how does it correlate to uh, the aim of the book, Master? Yeah, so so two things. Number one, I really love La Sagrada Familia so much. Uh, I I really think I don't think there's any physical structure on Earth that 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 better encapsulates the theme of the book. Right, that masterful work glorifies God and loves neighbor as self, right? I think it's such a good picture of that. Secondly, like a much on a much more practical level, uh, I think author pre-order campaigns are like super lame, right? Like I, I just think like, you know, it's like, hey, pre-order my book and get like a downloadable bookmark. It's like, who cares, right? And so, and I also, you know, as an entrepreneur, I don't think of books as $15 products. Like if I'm buying a book, I'm committing let's call it eight to 10 hours. Now, Master of One short, right? So call it five hours, five hours of my life to reading this thing. Books are not 15 bucks. If you value your time at, let's call it 50 bucks an hour, it's a five hour book. That's a $250 product. You got to give people a compelling reason to pick something up like that. And so, uh, you know, that, that's why we did the giveaway. I, I agree with you on those, those pre-orders. Uh, <laughs> some of those lame ones. They're so lame. They're so lame. I love it. Yeah, we we go over the top. So so and I, I know we're running out of time here, but 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 now speak to the, the corporate type. Um, yeah, they're they're struggling maybe with the company. Maybe the company is even doing extremely well, and they admit that they really haven't been focused on, uh, you know loving their neighbor and even necessarily being good to their, to the employees and the people that do the good work for them. Mm. What advice do you have for these individuals on, on how to reframe and, and, and getting to the core of a leader's responsibilities while they're using their gifts? Yeah. I would just encourage them, encourage them that their work matters today and for eternity, right? Like everything we do has eternal significance because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ out in the world. And so your work is not just work. It's not a meaningless means to an end. It's not a meaningless end to a paycheck. Uh, It is a way to show the love of Christ to people by treating them well. Uh, This doesn't mean that we pay people, you know, overpay people in a crazy way. It just means that we treat them well. We lead them well. Our work is ministry. you know, keep in mind, Jesus spent 80 plus percent of his adult life uh, making tables as a carpenter yeah. before he set out in his public ministry. 
he spent 80% of his adult life just showing us that like work matters. That they, Otherwise, why was he doing this, right? Like why didn't he just come as a full grown adult, right? Like he spent time making tables as a carpenter. Work is inherently good. Work is inherently meaningful. It's a means of building relationships and loving people as yourself. So if that doesn't motivate you, to do your job with excellence, I don't know what will as a believer, right? That's my ultimate motivation is to show Christ to others, right? Uh, and he is a working, creative, productive God. No other religion claims that for their founder. So let that inspire you to view your work with renewed enthusiasm and joy and purpose. That's my encouragement. Jordan, I've been in, enjoying my copy of, of Master of War. Oh, thank you. I know you had you mentioned it before with some ways to purchase a copy, but uh, give it to us again so that we don't lose it. I'm yep. going to drop it in the show notes, but not just ordering a copy of Master of One, but also following up with you and your work. How, how do we stay in, in contact? Yeah. So best place to follow all my work uh, is jordanraynor.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. And again, if you want to win this trip, two steps. Number one, Go order Master of One on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Step two, go to jordanraynor.com, fill out the form right there to let us know that you ordered the book, and you'll be entered to win. But you got to enter before January 27th. That's the cutoff, 11.59 p.m. Eastern. Uh, on January 27th, we're cutting it off, and we're going to pick a winner. My guest today on the Lady Wild Green podcast has been Jordan Rayner, author of Master of One. I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of Master of One. Here's here's what I want to do just because I feel so impressed and inspired by our conversation. I'm going to give away a free copy of Master of One. If There you, you go. I love it. Free copy of Master of One. All you got to do is go to prcquin.com and in the comments under this show, uh, just type in Master of One in the comments and you'll be entered to win your your copy of Master of One. So, Jordan, thanks for being my guest today. Thanks for having me, Pierre. Great conversation with Jordan Rayner about his new book, Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. And Jordan introduced an amazing contest in our conversation. So be sure to enter that contest. I also want you to enter because I'm giving away a copy of Master of One. So follow me on Instagram at Pierre Quinn or hop over to my Facebook page. Mr. Pierre Quinn, look for the cover of Master of One and instructions on how to enter that contest. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading While Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.